G'day and welcome to Runners Radio. I am your host, Rick Mirabella, and we are back for 2020. Now, the deep dive today, I'm not sure we've ever had a more accomplished athlete. We might never get one this accomplished again. A big idol of mine, um, this fella in front of me today, four-time Olympian, world championship bronze medalist, Com game silver medalist. I'll go for his PBs later because it's just never ending. He's on times and on results and lots of other things. Easily, I believe the greatest runner we've ever had. I welcome after that fairly large intro, Craig Buster Mottram. Thank you, Rick. Great to be here. It's one of the better intros I've had. I think you've had a few of those. <laughs> I've only stalked you for six months. Great man to come on. So I appreciate you coming down to Chelsea. He's come down. To runners, which I really appreciate, just to catch up. The biggest Face- mistake you made was going through LinkedIn. Do people just still do LinkedIn? No, Isn't it it's, Instagram. And yeah, stuff I don't, days? mate. I'm not. I'm no good on the socials, Buster. I'm, I'm hopeless. Don't you pretend? I reckon you're all over them. Um, now, the man in front of me, his dad's done it all. And um, today we'll just have a bit of a deep dive into his his life from growing up um, in Frankston and and coming over from England eventually with the parents and all. We'll go through that, and then we'll get into what, what it took for him to be at the very pointy end and for. A good seven or eight years, the only non-African to just compete, let alone beat them. When I go through the lists of names this fella beat, um, I think it's easily forgotten. And people now, because of the breaking two and all these things, know a lot more mainstream, a lot of these distance runners. But um, you wait and hear the story about Buster. Firstly, mate, I want to go through these times and then we'll go chronologically from the back. And then you tell me which of these was your finest effort. The 15, the range, just listen to this range, listeners, from, from 1,500 to the 10,000. 333 for 15, but the mile, still an oceanic record at 348. 2,450, another oceanic record. 3,000, I'm pretty sure you beat Bikili there, 732. Two mile, the fifth fastest ever, I agree. is that still the case? Of 803, he beat some athletes there, and one of the great quotes of all time, which we'll get to later after that, the 5,000, which was his pet, 12.55 in 04, and the 10,000, 27.34. Of all those times, you've got a couple other times that I think people will know well as well. Which one was your most memorable time? We don't want to talk too much about times. So your most memorable Look, I race. think, obviously, the, the traditional distance, 5K, 12.55, under 13 minutes, is, um, is one of the memorable. I did it against Haile Gabriel-Celesi in 04 at Crystal Palace in London. Um, he just beat me to the end, but it was a hell of a race. Um, but if we're looking from a data perspective, statistically, probably 450 for 2K. I did in Melbourne just prior to the Commonwealth Games at the old Olympic Park. Um, and it's not an event that's often run, 2K, so it's, it's five laps of, a, of an athletics track. Um, and I think that was probably when I was in the best shape of my career, you know, 506. So the 450 for 2K... Um, and obviously the two mile, which no doubt you'll talk about because there's some fun stuff that happened in and around that of 8.03. So the non-traditional distances are probably the times that I think will remain for the longest period of time, but the 12.55 for 5K is probably still um, the one that people will remember more than for the others. De- definitely purist, with look, all those times are, are I guess, are for purists, but the 5,000 um, being such a prodigious event, the 12 and a half laps, the people you had to beat to do it, and the amount of times you broke 13, oh, was at least half a dozen? Yeah. Oh, okay, is it six or something? Yeah, six. Yeah. Or which is phenomenal, which is yeah. phenomenal in itself, because um, I know Stewie's pushing towards that barrier now, but no one's done it in Australia in the history of... It's just, I think um, that's underrated in the annals of history as far as sports commentators, and I know distance running sometimes is up and down in the media, but to run 12.55, and even, we're jumping ahead, but the Com Games... Uh, time of whatever that was, twelve fifty eight. No, no one that wins every medal ever at a world cha- at a championship. Yeah, but I think it's important to to understand and put it in perspective. If you weren't running under thirteen minutes, you weren't competing mm. back when I was running. So I wanted to be the best athlete I could be, and and that was to try to be the best athlete in the world. And the honest truth around that was, I you had to run under thirteen minutes, and it was never a doubt for me that that. You know, that I would run under 13 minutes. It was whether or not that would be good enough to compete. And I never won a race running under 13 minutes. I was second in just about every race I ran under 13 minutes, which shows you the depth of, of, of talent that we had. So, I mean, races nowadays are, are probably a little bit more tactical than they were back when I was running. I had guys like Kenanisa Bikili, Gebra Selesi, um, Elliot Kipchoge, these guys that were out to try to break the world record. I ran in the race where Kenanisa Bikili ran 12.37 for 5K. I ran 13.10, which was an Australian record at the time, was halfway down the back straight, 
and Ken and Ethan finished taking the Ethiopian flag and he was catching me on his recovery warm down lap after running 12.37. So there's not many athletes. I don't think there's an athlete out there no. today that will, will scare those times. And obviously Ken and is now transitioning up into the marathon very successfully. Um, and him, him and Ellie are going to run London in a couple of months, which will be really interesting um, how that plays out. But I think, you know, that the timing, the times were something that was second nature to trying to compete. Yeah. And that was probably my biggest strength was I, I was desperate to try to win these races and I would, I would run whatever, I, you know, whatever was required to compete. And it just happened to be sub 13. And when I did it for the first time against Hailey, I wasn't trying to break 13 minutes. I was trying to beat mm. the guy. And that just happened. Yeah, great. That's a good insight into your mindset, though, because the reason you were the best for so long, and looking back retrospectively, easily the best um, in this part of the world, especially, was because you you were a winner, a winner, and winners just win, and you weren't content with just going around in thirteen ten and and being an also ran. Um, the, we'll get back to that era because that's a very special era for distance running, um, and. It, like a dragged competitive beast like you along for the ride. Take us right back to the start, big fella. Um, where you grew up, how'd you get into sports? I know you had a lot um, a lot of sport as a youngster with other sports as well, multi-sport stuff and field-based sports. So take listeners through that and just how eventually you go, well, geez, I'm actually pretty good at this sport. I might, uh, might give it a crack. Look, I, I was born in Frankston. Um, my parents, my mum's Scottish, my dad's from London, from Putney. Um, they came out in 1980 when mum was six months pregnant with me. Moved to Frankston, um, and I was born down there. Started my little athletics career down at Ballon Park um, under a guy called Com Butko, who was one of the coaches down there at the time. Um, and just did little ass like most other kids these days do. Um, I played soccer at Cranbourne Soccer Club. Um, my dad was one of the coaches. He played soccer or football for Wimbledon when he was growing up in the UK. So he had quite good pedigree. Um, my mum was a good um, county hockey player, I suppose, if you want to call it that choice of better term over in the UK. So I've got good stock. And I think good athletes don't come from nowhere. You've got to give some credit where it's due. And um, but my parents were always very active when we were younger. I'm one of three boys. I'm the middle of, of three boys. We're all 14 months apart. My younger brother, six foot 10, 115 kilo, played basketball for Australia. Uh, my older brother's a financial analyst now, lives in the UK and is, has got a successful career from there. And, and I think competition, competitive nature, human nature, you know, it's that old argument, is it, is it um, taught or is it inbred when you're born, you know? And I think... It's a bit of a combination for me. I got good pedigree and then my brothers having them around when we were playing sport in the backyard was always competitive. Um, and I use the example that dinner time, mum would just put a big bowl of spaghetti bolognese in the middle of the table and there'd be three plates and three forks and feed yourself. If you didn't get in, get it, get early and, and be aggressive at, at getting what you wanted, you didn't get it. And that was just what it was like when I was growing up. And, you know, times are a little bit different now with these kids. Um, but, you know, back to the sort of introduction and, and pathway into sport, it was... Little ass like everybody else, soccer at Cranbourne. Tried my hand at AFL for um, Franks and Rovers. Didn't like it once it became non-modified school uh, sport uh, rules when you were able to tackle and stuff like that. We did win a premiership, I think, in 1988 or 89 or something like that against Seaford, but I got about five minutes in the third quarter as a token gesture from the coach. Uh, footy wasn't really my thing, um, although I do love it. I'm a Geelong supporter. Um, and then I just followed sport through school. I didn't... Um, focus too much on running it wasn't really something that I was desperate to be the best at I obviously did it as a young kid and I was good at it I was national cross-country champion when I was 10 at the under 10s in Ballarat um, my mum had a perm and we still got it on VCR we can't watch it anymore because no one's got a VCR um, so it, look running for me was always something I did I was always good at it but it was never something that I focused on I was just one of these kids that tried everything did everything was very competitive at everything I did um, but I wasn't always the best at it. I would just try and try. I didn't like not being the best at, at something. Um, and I was always very, very focused on doing the little things. So I would go to soccer practice. If I couldn't curl the ball from the edge of the 18-yard box into the top right corner, I'd build myself a set of goals at home and I would just practice it. Um, if I couldn't run a 400 in under 60 seconds, then I would, I would take it away and I would practice it. I would try to get, you know, get through all the little details that would get me there. And that's just a personality trait of mine. Not everybody's like that, but... You know, everybody's got something that they want to be good at, and it's about that attitude and that persistence. And for me, that was always there um, from a young age. And um, growing up in Frankston was great. You know, everyone jokes about Frankston being a you know a tougher area, but for me, I loved it. We had a great group of friends around there. Um, Kingsley Park Primary School, um, all these sort of things. Cranbourne South Primary School, 
Um, and they all taught me lots of good things, they had great PE teachers and stuff like that. And in 1992, so I'm sort of 12, 13 years old, we moved over to Geelong. Um, my dad got a job at Geelong Grammar School, so we were very lucky. Um, there's no other way we would have been able to end up at Geelong Grammar School unless my old man was working there. Um, got a job at Geelong Grammar School, did a little bit of boarding there, participated in the school sports, I played soccer, continued to play soccer, did athletics, cross country. Um, and then in, I think it was 1995, 96, whenever it was, they announced that um, Sydney would get the Olympics in 2000. And that was when I think a lot of athletes, a lot of young people my age started to really consider whether or not um, there was a possibility of a career in particular sport. And for me, athletics was, was something that I was always talented at. I was doing a bit of triathlon and that sort of stuff at the time as well. And you weren't doing a little, hang on a minute. He wasn't doing a little bit of triathlon, listeners. He was uh, good enough to be national champion as an 18 year old. Yeah, but I did, so I tried a little hard. Bit. I tried hard at everything. Quite uh, We can touch triathlon later because there's some interesting stories throughout my career in triathlon. It was always that sort of burning desire to come back and have a go at it in the various parts in my sort of sporting Not career. over yet, brother. Well, no, nothing is ever over. But um, finished schooling in 1998. Um, ran the APS Sports, which is the private school sports or associated private public schools, whatever it is, sports carnival. Um, just missed Robert De Costello 3K record in the APS Sports Day. Um, and then had a few people approach me saying that you've got a bit of talent with running. Have you ever thought about giving it a go? And I think my response at the time was give me six months and I'll be the best in the world at anything. I was young and arrogant. <laughs> people mis misunderstand arrogance and confidence. And I think at that age, you don't quite know the difference either. You just sort of shoot from the hip and... Um, and I think that was always my personality. And, and then obviously we had the Olympics in 2000 and my goal was to qualify for that. Um, and I did within 12 months of leaving school, I ran 13.26, I think for, for 5K in, um, in Battersea Park in London, qualified for my first Olympics and off I went. And to be quite honest, we do a lot of work in schools now and have a lot of, um, not associations, a lot of influence and um, input over a lot of young athletes in various sports now and, and I always stress to them and their parents that you don't need to specialise in sport and tell you, you know, you're getting up to that 17, 18 years old. If you've got a very good foundation of skill, um, knowledge and acquisition that you've gained through trying everything when you're younger, once you know what you want to do, you can make that transition really quickly. Athletes, parents, just play that plus part over and over and over again. It is, it's so crucial. I don't know how many times we've said it on this. There's no need to specialise. And um, the Americans do it really well as well, a lot of the American uh, distance runners in colleges. So that's magnificent. We'll get on to what Buster does later because he's doing some great work within uh, all of Australia, really. Um, so you get to Sydney, um, the, the greatest place on earth, the Olympics, the sporting mecca. Tell, tell me about the village. Um, we've, I've got um, a good mate that went there as well, Chris McCarthy. Tell me about the he's a, he's a little injury prone. The big K Mac. Um, I grew up with him doing a little ass yeah. down at, at Ballon Park. Yeah. He's a legend. He went there as a twenty year old or nineteen yep. year old as well. Yep. So um, tell me about the Olympic Village. Uh, Busters. He's a young kid out of bloody school. Life's magnificent. You got these superstars. I know. You, I'm not sure who you would have saw him, but I don't know. You got the dream team. You got all these kind of guys. Like obviously Gabriel Celeste is at his peak. Tell us about the village and your experience at Sydney. I sense you're lining me up for something here, are you, Rick? You've spoken to Chris. No, I haven't, mate. I promise. I swear. Because <laughs> there were some good stories that came out of that Olympic village. Oh, we can definitely <laughs> go after dark if you want. We can definitely go <laughs> no, there. We won't go after dark. But no. uh, look, it's, it's an unusual environment, the Olympic village. You've got 10 or 12,000 athletes that don't normally live together, all come together for two or three weeks of the, of, um, of the year, once every four years, um, to try to be, you know, to you know, in the lead up to their most important competition. So it's an unusual environment. But for me at 19, just turned 20, um, it was exciting. And I think the, the best way to explain the Olympic Village is um, is by just sort of walking you through what, what happens in there. And obviously you've got your own space where you, you room, like a hotel room that you sleep in. But once you step outside of that hotel room, there's nothing normal about it. Everything is free. So you go to a vending machine, you don't put a dollar in to get a Coke, you just push the Coke and it comes out. You want a Powerade, you just take it. There's coffee cartel people everywhere. You want a coffee? No worries. Flat white. You want a muffin? Yep, no worries. It's all free, whatever you want. You go into the marquee, the dining hall, which seats 5,000 people. It's as big as this whole area that you've got here where your, your headquarters are. And you'll have the Dream Team, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, um, Roger Federer, whoever, you know, the best athletes from around the world, Usain Bolt, whoever it might be at that at that particular time, all sitting down and 
and eating together and you've got McDonald's, KFC, all the fast food chains, which the Americans eat funnily enough. And the swimmers actually eat it quite a lot because there's a lot of fat in that and it helps them recover between their multiple events. It keeps their body fat up, which keeps them buoyant in the water, so I'm told. Um, and I remember, we're not talking so much about Sydney, but I remember in London in 2012, we were sitting in, in the dining hall and um, LeBron James walked in um, and Kobe Bryant was there and all the Dream Team guys were coming in. They went to the McDonald's and they ordered their meals. And at this particular time, the, the Dream Team, the US team, were staying off-site on a boat for security reasons. They weren't actually staying in the village. And they got asked the question by the, the media with them, why do you come into the village to buy, you know, to get McDonald's? Um, you're earning 50, 60 million a year. Why don't you just freaking get it out on the street? And they said, because it's free, man. Everyone loves free stuff. <laughs> so they go into the village and they just get their free stuff. That's unbelievable. Um, but look, it, it's, an, it's an unreal environment. It's a surreal environment. It's not something that's sustainable for a long period of time. And a lot of athletes don't cope well with it, myself included. I didn't like it. Um, it was very claustrophobic. Um, everything was obviously on tap there, whatever you needed from dentistry um, to physio to MRI screens if you got injured and those sort of things or scans if you got injured. So it's a phenomenal place, um, but it, it's like life on steroids. Mm. It's just high, high energy, high anticipation. You've got athletes that have done well, athletes that haven't done well. Um, the energy is just full on and it wears you out. Emo yeah, but emotional, just emotional, just the amount of draining that must take on you. How, how do you go in the second week especially, yeah. um, how do you go trying to prep for it's one difficult. of the biggest moments of your life? Well, the, I stayed in the village in Sydney and in London that was it. and then Beijing and um, Rio, I didn't stay in the village. Okay. Uh, sorry, not Rio, Beijing Athens. and Athens, yeah. I didn't stay in the village. Um, just because I didn't like the pressure and obviously the athletics is on in the second week, swimming's on in the first week um, and most of the swimmers are already finished. So they're out partying, coming in at three o'clock in the morning, you're trying to prepare. And the 5K, which is the event I competed in at the Olympics, is always the last individual event on the last day. Um, or outside of the marathon, which is on after that. Um, so it's difficult to try to prepare. And it, for me, when I was racing and competing, I just liked to be by myself. I was quite happy just to sit in my own world on the days le leading into the competition. If I was confident and ready to run, it didn't matter. Um, if I didn't have any correspondence with my coaches or whatever, I was very relaxed and comfortable in knowing that, um, that I was prepared. We're in the village. Very difficult to do that, very difficult to get away. You've always got, as I said, those mixed emotions of other people that are competing. So in particular in the second week, and believe it or not, at the end of the second week, the officials, the volunteers, the athletes, everyone's over it. You know, everyone's getting tired, everyone's ready to go home, and you just, you're emotionally spent, and I haven't competed yet. So I'll get up in the morning of my day to compete, and the village is, you know, a little bit run down, a bit flat, and you know, I'm still trying to get ready for the most important run every four years. So from that perspective, it's really difficult. And I think it takes good planning, good coaching, good strategy to put in place um, the process that's gonna get you through that. The other challenge that people sort of don't quite understand with, around that sort of thing is the village, the cities that host the Olympics are on lockdown. So if you're, if you're an athlete, you're trying to get to the stadium where you're competing, the only way you can get in there is from the village because they've got chaperone lanes with the buses that go to and from the villages. So there's all different routes that the buses go. There's no way to get into those areas unless you go in from the village. And the process of getting in and out of the village is not easy either. So it's very tightly held. Um, and it's it's a if you want to stay outside of the village, so like we did in, in Beijing, you've got to get permission from uh, the National Sporting Organization, the uh, Australian Olympic Committee, the o, the World Olympic Committee have to give you permission and you've got to sign off that you are no longer the responsibility of that organisation. So if you were to have an issue mm. or be abducted or whatever, that you're, you know, you've ticked that off. So there's a lot of other bits and pieces that go around that Olympic village and those sort of things and it's not easy to manage. You've articulated that well because most of us um, would not have a clue what goes on in there and, and you can imagine uh, how hard that must be. And, like they do make it quite hard to stay off site by the sound of it. So you can imagine most distance runners, marathoners, yep. 5,000 men, they'll just be happy to just, take, just cop it. He's got to cop it and stay. Yeah, well, we're generally pretty quiet people, distance mm. distance runners. The marathon guys in particular are, are really quiet. Um, and if you think you've got to be into an unusual environment two weeks prior to your race, that doesn't make a lot of sense either when that's probably the most crucial two-week mm. period of your preparation. And then the coach can't stay in with you. So the people you've done all the work with for the four or five or six or 10 years leading into it, you can have really no communication with because they're not allowed in there. Um, when it gets to the competition day, they can't come into the warm-up area because they don't have accreditation. 
look, and that's they're not excuses. That's just that's, that's it just how it is. Yeah. Um, and that's part. That's to be quite honest, they're probably the biggest challenge. They're the bigger challenges that athletes face at the Olympics. The actual running, throwing, jumping, swimming, whatever. That's easy. We're good at that. Second nature as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's just the stress that goes around it which makes that competition more difficult than others. Who at this period in your life, Buster? Who was your coach in two thousand? Were you under the Institute uh, Legit? I was under Bruce Scriven in two thousand. Okay. Yep. And then, so when did we start to? We're going to get to the golden era in a minute. When did yep. we start to build in? So you've just gone there. You obviously Manchester Com Games. Did you go there? Yeah, O yeah. two. Yep. So you went to Manchester, and then. When do we start to say, okay, this is, I'm starting to really build towards the pointy end. We've got Athens around the corner. We've got these things. When do we go to Nick and then take us for that period? Yeah, so from 2000 to 2002, I was still working with um, Bruce. He was my coach. Um, obviously, throughout that period, uh, Melbourne Track Club was was involved. That was in its prime, obviously, around the Sydney Olympics with Cathy Freeman, Mori um, Plant um, and Nick and those sort of guys. Um were heavily involved in the sort of steering of the direction from a racing perspective, where to go, um, and the setup when you get over to Europe and these sort of things, which was their sort of domain. Um, so through 2001, 2002, um, coached by Bruce, working with Melbourne Track Club from a management point of view and the logistical elements of training and accommodation and all those sort of things over in Europe. At the end of 2002, um, we had an event in uh, Madrid in Spain, the World Cup, um, and I ran the 3K and won the 3K there. Um, ran 741 um, and that was my first I suppose major win on the international scene um, and I just bought a house my first house actually in Geelong uh, just prior to, to winning that race so the the idea was to sort of come back base myself in Geelong which is where I was living with my mum and dad at the time and, and move into the new house and um, and set myself up there but as it turns out um, I moved on from Bruce Scriven to be fully invested with the Melbourne Track Club sort of set up um, and that meant I moved up to Melbourne to train in Melbourne um, full-time. Um, and so that sort of transition from Bruce to that Melbourne Track Club group set up with Maury and, and the like happened in 2002. Um, and then we were you know, preparing for, um, for Athens, really, in 2004. Big build-up to Athens. Um, yep. And you knew that you were going to be right amongst it. Tell, um, was it 03, 04, the racing in Europe? Uh, how did you find it and how, did you, how were you feeling with your body, I know that 03 period, you were in pretty good shape. Yep. And um, is that the World Cup win again, 03, Bikili? Is that the 03? No, so that was in 08. Oh, so, that's the 08. Se- so the first... So take, the, take us back to Athens then, take us back oh, to... Sorry, 06 was the World Cup against yeah. Bikili. So so generally, well, the World Cup's every four years. So I had it in 2002 in Madrid um, and won that. And then off the back of that, obviously, there's a snowball effect. Success continues to, to breed more success. And obviously, training continues to improve and changes are made and... Um, environments are set up in a more professional way and things like that. And so in 03, it was really a building year for me. Um, I, I had a bit of downtime at the end of 2002 to consolidate everything. And then in 03, it was a building phase, um, trying to get back into racing over in Europe, experience um, some different setups from a tactical perspective and just um, mature as an athlete, I suppose, under that more um, guided tutelage of the Melbourne Track Club setup. Um, and 03 is a not there's not really that much on on those sort of years. The year pre- preceding the Olympics is generally a little bit quieter. So athletes are trying different things and getting themselves set up for, for those Olympics, um, which in this case was in 04 in Athens. So I ran the World Championships. Sorry, I didn't run the World Championships. They were in Paris in 2003. I ran the World Championships in Canada in 2001. Um, I went and commentated the World Championships in 2003 for SBS, um, which was another one of those sort of experience things. And I remember watching Gabra Celesi and Bikili run the 10K the World Championships, I commentated it with Bruce McAvaney and Dave Colbert, I think, at the time. Um, and Bikili and Gabra Celesi ran 12.57 for the second half of a 10K. That's ridiculous. And I remember calling it, and Bikili was actually jogging, encouraging highly Gabra Celesi to keep up with him because highly wanted to, to you know, get a medal, obviously, and Bikili wanted to go 1, 2, 3 Ethiopia. So he was keeping the other two Ethiopians together while running 12.57. And for those that don't know what that is, that's 62 seconds a lap after already running you know, 5K, and um, which is phenomenal. And I remember at the end, uh, I don't know if it was Bruce or Dave, one of them turned to me and said, what do you think about that? And I said, that, that's fucked, excuse my language. Nah, that's wrong. Not on air. And they said, why is that? And I said, well, how are you supposed to beat guys like yeah. that that can jog around in 12.57? And yeah. whether you believe it or not is irrelevant. They're the guys that I had to, com- to compete against, whether, um, you know, everyone's 
viewing of those sort of things, those sort of results. Cynical at times. Cynical at times is mm. different. But at the end, and my approach to all that was the reality is whether they're, you know, running slowly or fast, I have to compete with them no matter how quickly they run. So it's, um, it's really interesting. Uh, watching that and commentating on that and then actually next year, the following year, having to go and, and run against them. And that, that was a really interesting insight for me. Uh, handy bloke that won the 5K at that meet as well. Was that Kipchoge's gold as an eight? Yeah, yeah, so he's, he's won a few. Mm. <laughs> um, Elliot's obviously, he was very good on the track. We raced a lot over, over my years and his years on the track. He beat me far more times than I beat him. And he's, he's just a legend. He's a good guy. Really nice guy, but he seems to have found his straps in the marathon, which is scary to be a world champion on the track and then be even better again in the marathon is, is quite phenomenal. Back to that 10,000 that you watched while yep. you were commentating, like a bloke like you, uh, I think this is why you were so popular um, for like, like club runners and footballers and people like me that just watched athletics um, and admired. I think your mental outlook was definitely what made you set you apart. So you're watching that going, well, look, if that's the standard, then I've got to, I've got to absolutely break myself to try to do that. So, you go back to the well. So, tell me about from there that world champs, your training. Give me an average, like in your peak training phase, leading up to Athens, knowing that this is what I've got to do to be competitive in in the five thousand, and uh, and what this is what I've got to put out. So, give the listeners a bit of a, I guess a bit of an overview, or, or seven day cycle, whatever cycle you might yeah. have been in. Look, I think it's important to understand. Motive, being motivated and being driven to, to try to run as fast as you can is one thing, but being able to do it in a way, in a manner in which is controlled and sensible is the most important thing. So my, my desire, my determination and desperation to be the best I could be was, you know, was probably one of the, my biggest assets, but I think the biggest asset was that I surrounded myself with good people um, that had good experience and were able to do it in a way that... Um, controlled it so that I didn't go from zero to 100 overnight. It took time to build there. Um, but an average week for me, probably 03, 04, 05, that sort of uh, period, um, varied obviously throughout the year, depending on what we were doing, but we would run um, about 160 kilometres a week. Um, mind you, this is without the Garmin technology or you know those sort of GPS tracking systems back then. It was just done by handwritten diary and we think it's about that far. Um, we didn't really measure it, to be quite honest, that much. But, um, you know, knowing what we know now, I'd say about 160 kilometres a week, of which um, we did a seven-day cycle, um, three quality sessions a week, two long runs a week. So the quality sessions would be one track, one hill, one threshold, that, that sort of thing, depending on the time of year. Um, track work would, um, the volume on the track, so the main part of the session would be anywhere from 5 to 8K, um, and it would be different repetitions depending on, what, what time of the year. So for, for a sort of off-season or, or pre-competition phase, not pre-competition, sort of base-building phase, I suppose, would be something like mile reps, 2K reps, 1,200 reps, that sort of stuff. Um, once you start to get into your pre-competition phase, you start to get a bit more specific, 800, 600s, um, that sort of stuff at race pace. And then once you're into your really focused competition stuff, uh, the reps would range, obviously, depending on what you're trying to get ready for. And I think it's important to race to train specifically for what you're trying to get ready for. For me, um, the major championships, there was a heat and a final, so you had to get out of the heat to make the final. If you didn't get out of the heat, you didn't run the final. To get out of the heat, you had to run under 2.30 for the last K. So we knew all these different bits of information, so it was about training appropriately to be able to get the ammunition required to deal with that. Um, and, I, and to do that meant, you know, the, the training was quite specific at various times of the year. Um, so you got your three sessions a week, and then outside of that, it was all aerobic running, much like what you would be doing with your guys and girls here. It's um, your specific base training for race preparation, race preparation rather, and competition, and then the rest was aerobic base building, which is really, really important. It is extremely important. And tell the listeners who sometimes struggle to get out of those grey zones or it's given my idea of, of an easy recovery run pace yep. compared to what we know we've got to race at 2.30. So you're racing at 2.30 pace, Give this an idea of your easy jogs on a, a Thursday Arvo recovery yeah, run. So, um, the problem we have today with with training and things like that, we have so much data readily available on our wrist with our watch. So people look at easy runs and they look at K pace. How fast are they running on an easy run? I should be running five minute Ks, I should be running 5.30 Ks, six minute Ks, 4.30, whoever, depends on who it is. That is really for mine irrelevant. Um, an easy recovery run is simply that. It should be easy and it should be focused about recovery. So for me, I would always, I'd run the same loop 
you know, my 35 minute loop from home was always be the same loop. I wouldn't bother wearing a watch and I would just try to run it as slowly as I could run it. That's so the, your recovery day. runs, yeah. Rick, uh, are that. People underestimate the importance of recovery running and recovery sessions and that sort of stuff. No one's getting fit when they're doing hard sessions. You're getting fit when you're recovering from the hard sessions. So your body's making the physiological change when you allow it the time to adapt. If we don't allow it that time to adapt, it will not change and there's no point doing the sessions. So I used to train a lot with um, Benita Johnson, Sonia O'Sullivan, um, a lot of female distance athletes and I would do all of my running with them. And people would always say, why don't you go and you know, go to Kenya and train with the Kenyans or go here and I thought, because I don't need to. I, I've got a good sense of what my body needs to do and I, I'll back in what I'm doing and how I'm doing it to be the best that I can be. And I don't think stressing myself you know, too hard every day is, is appropriate. I can't, I could not agree more. And it's just, it's so unfortunate with Stravas and all these things now that have it just made every bloody recovery run like you, you the leaving the watch at home is a magnificent tip people would, i reckon they'd get anxious doing it but they need to do it more and run on feel our body will tell us it's been telling us for 300 years from from a coaching perspective we did a clinic down at um down in mornington a tri clinic um and i had a group of 20 kids and i had a big whiteboard that i had turned around with the session you know that the kids couldn't see and i sort of gave them a two minute spiel saying this is going to be one of the toughest sessions you do but i want you to do it um, appropriately as per the instructions um, and those sort of things. I'll turn the board around in a minute. Uh, but the hardest thing we're going to do to start with um, is this. And they all looked at me like they were going to get a bloody 1K time trial or whatever they were going to get. And I pulled a bucket out from behind the whiteboard and I put it on the ground. And I said, every single one of you is going to take those fucking watches off and you're going to put them in the bucket. That's why I love this, man. <laughs> and they looked at me and they were like, I love him. What am I going to, why would we do that? And I go, well, because I want you to do the session on feel, and I'll explain why in a minute. Put your watches in the bucket. So they put their watches in the bucket, turned the thing around. None of it was done on times. It was all done on feel. Three laps, um, six out of ten effort. And then we do two laps, eight out of ten effort. Then we do one lap, one out of ten, uh, nine out of ten effort. Then you get a little jog, and then we'll, you know, we'll do this sort of stuff. And as the kids were running around, I was watching, observing, and all that sort of stuff. And the coaches came up to me, and they were like, how are we going to know how they went? <laughs> Um, we, they're not wearing their watches, we don't get the data. And I said, well, there's two things in the front of your head. Why don't you have a look? Use them. Watch. You're a fucking legend. Ask them. That is Talk great. to them. That sort of stuff. And you'll get more from talking to them than you will get from looking and analysing the data. Yes, there's a place and time for that sort of stuff. But it's, it's about making sure that the athlete learns to understand what things feel like and that we engage with our athletes when we're, you know, when we're doing it. So many people need to hear that. Um, half art, half science. The science is, is not... Uh, new in, uh, in distant training. It's the same signs we've used since the 70s and 80s. So the art of it has been lost sometimes. So the art of coaching, that is that is magnificent. And the easy runs need to be bloody easy. They Otherwise, we're not, the sleep, we'll talk, we're not talking about that today, but all the recovery mechanisms are, are so crucial, but not nothing more, especially at the pointy end, or if you're trying to take seconds off, which everyone is, um, those easy recovery runs. That was brilliant. I, di I didn't know we were going to be – that was good. I didn't know it was going to be so good. I was hoping you'd say, yeah, just slow on, on feel. But you look about what we do, perceive rate of exertion every day in here. Bikili said it once brilliantly, 90% on Monday might be very different than 90% on Thursday, and I use that every day. Look, it's just, it's not going to be the same, and especially your recovery runs. Like, Chuck, just, just tune out, listen to nature podcast, but don't take the watch and don't worry about paces. It's irrelevant. And that's coming from the best there ever was. 04. Athens, we're going to get onto that very soon. You're lined up in, so you've done all those weeks. We heard about the staples, the three qualities, the too long and the, the easy running. He's um, and doesn't have to travel anywhere, doesn't have to. He's got Falls Creek and he's got um, Benita and some of the great Australian uh, distance runners of all time. Nick Badeau's in charge at the moment. We get to Athens and this is, in my opinion, the greatest era of distance running ever. Um, I know the 60s and 50s and that were great, but this is legit. The 5,000 metre final this, of this Olympics, like if there's been a better field, I'll run naked because I don't reckon I've seen one. The man in front of me was good enough to come eighth and he was on the way up. But um, tell us about that day and we'll, uh, yeah, listeners, sit back. Yeah, look, it was, it was an interesting um, experience, Athens, because just prior to that, that's when I ran 12.55 against Highly. So my, I was in good nick. I was ready to go. Qualified for the final quite comfortably um, and knew that, um, all things going well, I, I could finish in the top eight. On paper, I was probably around seventh, um, seventh, sixth, eighth, that sort of spot. Um, but then you always hope that one or two of the other guys have a not such a good day and that you might be able to sneak a bit further up. Um, 
but yeah, we've spoken about the village and things like that. It's a stressful place, especially on the you know on the morning of an Olympic final when you know at eight o'clock that night you're you're going up against the best in the world in front of the entire world, um, and everyone's watching, and and that weighs on you. Um, and I didn't sleep that well the night before. Um, you try to sleep as long as you can the morning of a race so that uh, you're as rested as you can be and you kill as much downtime as, as you can because there's nothing you can do on race day other than rest and wait. Um, so I got up, went to the um, dining hall, had my breakfast, my normal breakfast, um, did a little bit of a jog and then we made our way over to the track probably about four o'clock, I think, um, over to the main stadium um, and, and warmed up. And it's a surreal experience when you've got guys like Bakili and... Hisham El Garouge, who'd won the 1500 earlier in the week, um, all lining up in a race, and then you've got a white guy from Australia who's a foot taller, who, um, you know, and I look up, I was experienced at this point and all that sort of stuff, so there was really no, nothing wrong with that side of it, but it's still, you've got to pinch yourself occasionally to, to you know, appreciate how lucky I was uh, at that time to get those opportunities to run against those guys, and they're all learned. Um, but I remember st standing on the start line of this particular race, and I try to, and I did it in London better than I've ever done it before, appreciate where I actually was because yeah. I thought, I knew at that time that this was probably my last Olympics, so I looked at the flame and all that sort of stuff. And I did it in Athens um, as well. I got out onto the track and you do a few strides and everyone's sort of shitting, nervous, right? You're, shit, you're basically shitting yourself. Um, and I, you have a look at the flame and you go, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. And you try to pretend that you're interested, but you couldn't really give shit. You're just trying to focus on the race. But you're trying to take it in. Everyone says take it in, enjoy it, but yeah. You're, um, you're focused on what you're trying to do. And I remember on the start line, I was standing there and I, I looked one way and I had um, Bakili, I looked the other way, I had El Garouge and um, you know, Sa uh, Ali Saidi, Shaheen and all these sort of guys that were in there. Um, phenomenal field. And the starter says, on your marks, and we go down and I'm thinking, shit, I forgot to brush my teeth. That's <laughs> now that is that that's a bit of a, a it's a bit a of a tradition. Yeah. So I normally brush my teeth so, um, before I go to the track and that sort of stuff. And obviously with everything that was going on that day in the lead up, you don't strike me as the kind of bloke that'll uh, waste too much mental and nervous no. energy on too much, which is why, which is one of the keys. But to you success. know, I, it made me laugh, made me smile, and then off that's we what went. you're and thinking it, about, and it, and it relaxed me. And I and I still I think if you can be in that state of mind where you're just relaxed and in the moment, it's the best. You just let it happen. And I always tell myself when I'm in those championship races, and it's not always this way because sometimes things go wrong in preparation, you're not as prepared as you could be. But when, when you're in a position where you've trained well, everything's gone as good as you could have hoped for, really it's a simple process. You're just going out to run. And I had a mentor, a guy who um, used to help me through, he's a bit like you actually, he used to help me through these sort of um, situations when I'd be under pressure, um, in particular in 2006 at the Commonwealth Games. And he said, mate, it's simple. Go left, go straight, go left, go straight. Repeat it 12 and a half times. How hard is it? And when you hear the bell, just run fucking harder. Exactly. That's it. He goes, it's not that hard. You can't get lost. Don't overcomplicate it. And you just let it happen when you get out there. And if, and, and that was always you know, my approach. You can overcomplicate these sort of things, but it's done on effort. Keep it calm. Keep it relaxed. And even in things like the Olympics, um, you know, it's important. But back to that Athens Look, I was eighth. Um, that's what the, the results showed. I was probably a bit disappointed with eighth, to be quite honest, because I, you know, I just felt had had it all gone, um, not so much my way. It all went about as well as it, it probably could have. But I just dropped off with a cup. I think with about eight hundred to go or seven hundred to go, I started to fall away. El Garouge went to the front and just started winding it up. And and um, times are not really relevant in those sort of championship races. But I just didn't have that ammunition that we spoke about earlier. Um, to deal with that in 2004, and that that was highlighted in that race. Um, and so what we what I would do is go back, think about it, work through what we needed to do, and then the next championship in 2005, which we'll get to, was make sure I had the ammunition to deal with it. It's um yeah that that, that event in particular though, like, that would have taught you so much. Like you got a miler at the front who's I think it was the first time since the 20s or 30s that uh, maybe Parvo Nermi that actually won the 5,000, El Garouge. You got that kind of runner at the front. You can imagine him, he's, he's the best miler of all time, time-wise, pushing the pace. You're still young, you're still young in your journey. Yep. And the pace would have just picked up another level those last 600 yeah. metres. And look, El Garouge, he was at the end of his career then. Um, he was probably at the height of his powers and he was, I was just starting out. Mm. I was at the younger part of my career um, and he was a phenomenal athlete. The guys run 3.43 for a mile. Mm. Um, 326 for 1500, 1248 for 5k, 
and these are the things that you've got to sort of toss around in your mind before you line up against those guys is how the, how the hell do you do you beat him? Does your mind go there? Look, we've all had, we all have bad days. That was an amazingly good day for you. But when you're absolutely like you're almost bankrupt for everything, right? You're bankrupt out there. You got 600 meters to run. Does, does El Garouge's times come in your head? Look, none of us are normal nah. privilege to run against blokes like this. No, you, same with it. Same with you know, yeah. people that you're training. When you get to that point in the race where you know you, you're going to lose contact and you you know the, you're about done with what you can offer, um, you just try to get through it and, and consolidate the, the damage, I suppose, try to minimise the damage at that point. Um, and the, really, that I think, and I said this, and I learnt this in Athens, not so much in Sydney. In Sydney, for me, at the Olympics in 2000, it was an experience, it was fun and all of that. In Athens, what I really took away from it was the people that get the medals are the people that honestly believe they have earned them the most. They want them the most. Everybody that stands on the start line in an Olympic final can run. Like they can all run, right? They're all good runners. They're your top 15 runners in the world. Mm. Every one of them on their best day probably has an ability to go in the top three, you know? So you've got to really want it, really earn it, really deserve it. And I think the athletes on those given days that get those medals are the ones that just desperately want it more. So well said. To cap off that Athens experience, you... And this is why you were the best, manifesting what you wanted and, and then going and training for it. How can I get better? I've got to run a 2.30k at the end. But the belief, anyone can go and do that in training, the belief to do it on the start line is why Buster was the best. We will move on to 05, great man. So I guess then, you're coming into 05, you've got this knowledge behind you, we're, we're thinking, okay, how are we going to go about it? You've, you spoke about training methodology, which was really good. Um, and I guess, did you have much input in your programming or did you just kind of switch off let nick or whoever else run run that um, i did in the sense that i was very proactive in the feedback that i gave so you know after sessions i would say i felt good felt tired wasn't coping with the load um you know that sort of stuff i never designed the sessions per se but i would the feedback that i would give um the coach or my coach at the time would i would imagine would have been taken into account and would have guided the remainder of the week or the remaining sessions um, so yeah, it was it was always um, the honest honest feedback, and a lot of kids and athletes these days hey, had the session feel yeah good. Um, you saw no, they don't they're not really proactive in reporting how they're going, and I think from a coaching perspective now that the shoe's on the other foot and I'm dealing with it as, as a coach, the more information an athlete can give you, the easier it is to coach them because you can actually structure the training accordingly. You don't necessarily have to tell the athlete that you're going to give them an easier session or back them off. You just make the change and then let the athlete go and do um, do the sessions. But we knew off the back of 2004 what I needed to get better at, so it was pretty easy, to be honest. Yeah. And, you look, yeah, you've got you got it out in front of there. To get a medal, you've got to do this. just mm. that simple. So the world champs, which um, for, the I guess, the general pop aren't as right up there, but um, for, for most sports lovers, the world champs are exactly like the Olympics, exactly... Like there's obviously that prestige factor is still there. Mm. You got all the best athletes are there. Everyone's there, and um, a young bloke from Melbourne um, was in the final, and that was one of the greatest races I've ever seen. It certainly inspired me as a young runner. Um, and this is when I think, like I always, I always looked up to you. But then when you did that and that last hundred meters, which I implore the listeners to view, the last hundred he looked gone three times. You did look gone <laughs> three times, and and on in lane one he just pops his little mullet out and just. Gets the job done, and another the same bloke we talk about, Kipchoge, was fourth that day, I think, and Limo won the race. But a bronze medal, and this is massive as well. The only non-African to win a medal at the World Champs since 1987. Um, that's just a ridiculous stat in itself. So, tell us about the race, the lead up. Tell us how you yeah, felt. We, we we acknowledged from 2004 that the, the guy that won the Olympics in 2004, Hisham El Garou, is the best 1500 meter runner to have ever lived. So. We took the assumption from that that in major championships, if the best 1,500-metre runner will be probably the hardest to beat in, in a 5K final at the Olympics. It's just the way, or the World Championships, whatever it is, it's just the way those races go. Um, there's no pacemaker, so it's a bit more tactical early and then it winds up and it's a, you know, it's a mile kick down at the end. So I got better at that 1,500 um, distance and prior to, to the um, World Championships in Helsinki, um, ran a mile in Oslo and broke the Australian mile record and that's when I set my 348 um, PB for the mile. Um, so w I was even more confident going into the World Championships that I was ready because I knew I had the strength to run a good 5K. You know, if it was under 13 minutes, I could deal with that. Um, and I could deal with the kick down, which I couldn't quite deal with in 04 in Athens. 
because uh, I'd improved my, my 1500 mile um, ability. So I was ready to go. The heat of the, the 5K in Helsinki is on a Thursday. Um, we qualified in 1312, uh, which was probably the easiest 1312 I've ever run in my life. And I remember off the back of the heat, I went back to- That's was, a good feeling. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was ready to go, Rick. I, I was, it was what you call a purple patch in running. I, I was gonna be fucking hard to beat. And um, we didn't stay in the village just for that reason. I was ready, I was confident, I knew where I needed to be and what I was doing. So I stayed out in a little hotel in the middle of Helsinki, just on, on my, with my coach and whatever else, and a few other people. Um, the day of the final uh, was really an, an interesting day because obviously it's, it's the last in, um, event. The only other athlete that was competing, um, well, that was, sorry, that was hanging around that day was John Stephenson um, in the warm-up area. So I had a good chat with John Stephenson and um, he made me laugh a little bit. He had a really good race over 400. Um, but I was, I was in the mindset that did, nothing was really gonna bother me. I was gonna go out and deliver. Uh, my best run and that would be what it would be and I was pretty confident that a medal would, would be something that I could achieve and I remember walking in Helsinki you go underground through a big cave through a mountain and then you pop up next to the stadium and then you go into the back of the stadium where you go into the call room before you go out onto the track and as we were walking in there was a camera that was watching the athletes and as I walked past I was walking with my coach and the camera sort of zoomed around us and we both joked in the, and I said, oh, it's interesting that they're, they're watching us. And he goes, it's because you're the only fucking white bloke in the race. <laughs> people are interested. And a you bit know? better foot taller than <laughs> People are interested in what you're about to do. Um, and then he said to me, is there anything in the lead up to this race that you would do differently to be better prepared today? And I thought that was an interesting question from a coach going into the call room. Because uh, he was obviously confident that there was nothing more we could do. And he knew that I was confident. And I said, yes, there is. And he goes, Oh yeah, what's that? And I said, well, I got a fucking parking ticket in the UK about two months ago. I wish that never happened. Can you take that off me, please? <laughs> and, and we had a laugh. And again, same back to the brushing of the teeth. It's like I knew I was in a good space. I was happy. I was relaxed. And it was just another training session to go out and deliver. So I got out on the track, did the race, um, started off relatively slow. So it was a bit of a jog around, which didn't really play in, into my sort of strengths, but you know, very hard to go to the front too early in one of those races and, and build it up. But my strategy, and you, anyone that's watched that sort of big Mazungo DVD will have heard this before, but the strategy was always to get on the back of Elliot Kipchoge at the bell. Um, he, we thought he was gonna be the guy to beat. So, and, and from a coaching perspective, when I was running, I always liked really clear, simple instructions. Follow this person, get on the back of this person, run at this pace, do, you know, and compete, that's it. Don't overcomplicate it. So it was always going to be, get on the back of Elliot Kipchoge and at the bell, race. So at the bell, I was on the back of Elliot Kipchoge, exactly where I needed to be, and I was in the right spot. If I was good enough, I was in the spot to win the race. Um, got down the back straight, and I, we were going. We were moving probably 50, 53 second pace for the 400 down the back straight, 54, whatever it is. And at that pace, it's really hard to pass people. So every, you know, at 53 seconds, to get past someone, you've probably got to drop a 51.8, 51.9. It's a second difference to get you know, from behind to pass. So I tried to pass. Um, Seleshi Sahini, I'd gone past Elliot at this point and tried to pass Seleshi Sahini and get to the front with 200 to go so that you got the inside running around the turn. And um, because of the pace and it, because of how slow it had been early on, everyone had fresh legs to be able to kick. So everyone was moving really quickly and I couldn't get to the front. So I had to settle in behind Seleshi. And at that point, I, I started to tighten up and I knew with about 150 to go that that was happening. And it's when you start to tighten up, you kind of have to back off couple of percent to let loosen up again and, and squeeze again and in a training session that's really to, easy to do in competition when you can see the guy you're trying to beat slowly getting away from you and you know you've got people coming up on your shoulder it's totally against the grain to try to slow everything down and relax at that point you just I gotta go I gotta go I gotta go and so I was tightening up and then I came into the straight and Ben Limo shot past on the outside we didn't predict Ben Limo to be the guy that would win the race um, and he just, he ran away with it, to be quite honest, quite easily in the last sort of 60, 70 metres. Um, and I went from from second into the home straight to third and then to fourth. Elliot came up, Elliot Kipchoge got around me again going into the straight, uh, into the, um, halfway down the straight. And then I just remember thinking, my parents were over there as well, and I just remember thinking, fuck, I, I can't come fourth because, I, you, you know, that's just not what I came here to get. And I just, I, I fought harder. 
and I because I'd had that moment of doubt I, pro I just let myself relax a little bit and then I, I came back into that sort of realization at that point and this all happens in the two seconds I, I gotta go I gotta go I can't I can't come forth and I've got to you know be desperate the people that get the medals in these races are the people that are the most desperate and so I did I went and I could I could sense it happening with about 40 to go I could I'm gonna I could fucking get him I could get him I could get him and um, and then I got um, Elliot on the line um, and there was a moment of hesitation as to whether I'd got third or not um, and Mori Plant who uh, Mori's actually and this is very sad Mori actually passed away um, on Sunday so that's a huge loss for Australian sport but he was hugely instrumental in my career in terms of guiding me and everything else but back to this story um, he was on the track and he was always on the track when I ran 12.55 he was the first bloke that was there to give me a high five all those sort of things he's just heavily involved in um, and on this particular day he was working for the BBC so he was at the finish line um, and I didn't know I was like did I get third and I looked up tomorrow and he was like you got you know you got third so he was the first person to report in and prior to all this happening so prior to the race prior to the world championships I'd spoken to um, Nike about um, who were my sponsor at the time about getting a t-shirt with Buster on the back that if I got a medal could I wear this t-shirt and be a bit of, you know have a bit of fun with it um, so they'd made me up this t-shirt that had Buster on the back and then I thought on the morning of the competition that'd be even better to get a cigar and put it in, <laughs> put it in a bag and if I did get a medal to just light up a cigar and smoke it which was a dumb idea but I was young and whatever and um, as I finished the race and I'd got third uh, my assistant coach at the time, Gary Henry, was in the grandstand up just above the press area and he had my shirt and all that other, and the cigar and everything in a bag. And I said to, um, to Gary, if I get a medal, throw it down to me and I'm going to put it on and I'm going to run my lap. Um, so I'd finished and I had, before I'd considered anything, phew, this bag came straight across in front of my face and hit the track. And I was like, far out. So I picked it up and it had my shirt in it uh, and I put it on. Uh, but there was no cigar. Gary had <laughs> got rid of it because he didn't want me to do it. Um, so I put the shirt on, I had a big buster on the back and off I went around the track. Um, and unbeknownst to a lot of people, prior to all this happening, I did actually get it ticked off by Danny Corcoran, who was the CEO of Athletics Australia, a couple of days before the final, because Athletics Australia had a contract with New Balance and I didn't want to wear a Nike T-shirt and get Athletics Australia in the shit for, for that. So I did actually speak to the boss and I remember the conversation went like this, hey Danny, if I get a medal at the World Championships, I've got this bus, I've got this T-shirt that Nike have given me. It's a Socceroos T-shirt. It's got my name Buster on the back. Do you mind if I wear it? And he goes, Craig, if you get a medal at the World Championships, you can wear what you fucking well like. <laughs> Coming up in part two of the deep dive with Craig Mottram. There hadn't been someone from outside of Africa that was able to compete with um, with those Africans in uh, nearly 20 years or whatever it was.